You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our scripture today is from Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse, neither to eat nor to drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander to bring him down to you, as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. However, before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander, because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander, and said, The prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, because he has something to tell you. Then the commander took him by the hand, led him aside, and inquired privately, What is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they are going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you because there are more than 40 of them arranged to ambush him, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they kill him. Now they are ready, waiting for the commitment from you. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. He summoned 20 of his centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. He also also provided mounts so that they can put Paul on them and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter of this kind. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down before their Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were about disputed matters in their law and that there was no charge that merited death or chains. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. Therefore, during the night, the soldiers took Paul and brought him to Antipatris, where they were ordered. The next day, they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. And when these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what providence he was from, so he learned that he was from Cilicia. And he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers get here, too. And he ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. This is God's word. It is such an honor and a blessing to be here worshiping the God who is worthy. To open up his word with you is a privilege. And if you have your Bibles or an app with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible at all, we'd love to put one in your hand. There's some underneath of the chairs in front of you. They're our gift to you. We think it's important to dive in and see what God has said in his word. And we're looking at a story that you've just heard from Acts chapter 23, which is absolutely full of, I mean, I told Heather, I asked Heather yesterday, why is somebody not 
Uh, maybe they have. You guys are going to tell me differently. I haven't seen like an epic miniseries on Acts. I mean, this passage is full of intrigue. It's full of deception. It's full of late night over, you know, running away, stealing away, governor's power, hundreds of soldiers. There's all kinds of stuff that your probably favorite series, maybe at least I'm into that kind of stuff, maybe you're not, uh, would enjoy. And it's all packed into this very short passage. And I'm going to ask that you join with me and pray that God's Spirit be with us to help illuminate our eyes and our hearts to, to learn from Him. So pray with me. Father, this morning we're grateful again to open up Your Word and ask that You will be evident with us, that Your Spirit would teach us, would guide us, that as we walk through this story of what you've done in Paul's life, that we would take to heart that you are the same God today as you were then, as you have been forever and you forever will be, and that you love and care for your people. God, thank you for your kindness, and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So how can you maintain hope when a situation seems hopeless? How can you and I have confidence that God is for us? Look, while Bob Marley soothingly assures us that everything is going to be all right, <laughs> reality often seems to paint a different picture. In church circles, we will often use a phrase, God is sovereign, whenever something troubling comes up to encourage one another, to encourage ourselves, We might say it when our candidate doesn't win for office. We might use it when our team doesn't make the playoffs. God is sovereign. Other times we might use it to reassure one another when we lose a loved one or when we're faced with an unexpected medical diagnosis or when we're just struggling day to day to get by. But what does God's sovereignty really mean? God's sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. Job, in his struggle, when he spoke to God, he told him, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's like, I know you have the power and I know nothing's gonna stop you. But, but here's a challenge because God's sovereignty alone doesn't take into account his wisdom, his justice, his righteousness, his grace, or his plan. To have the power and the might to do something doesn't mean it's good. It's really in this place only about the fact that God can do whatever he wants in sovereignty. What we need to look at is his providence. Because in biblical providence, it's about God's sovereign care with wisdom and purpose. I actually appreciate how John Piper has defined it. He phrases it this way, that providence is wise and purposeful sovereignty. That he can do whatever he, he determines to do and within his wisdom and his purpose. It's really the purpose of God that are central to his providence. God sees to it that everything works together for the goals he has for the world. In Isaiah 46, God says just as much. He tells Isaiah this, I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
He won't be thwarted. And in particular, God's providence is on display throughout the book of Acts and truly throughout scripture. But this passage in particular, when we look at it, draws out God's providential care for Paul in such a way that it's clear that Luke wants to point us to it. And my hope for us, my prayer, and I think truly what Luke, as he's writing this, is hoping the church will be encouraged in, is that we would have an unshakable confidence in God's providence. That no matter the schemes, no matter the pains, no matter the struggles, no matter the challenges, that we would have ultimate trust in the goodness and greatness and power of God. So let's look at this passage. First, let's do some backstory. What's going on here? Micah even mentioned a little bit, we've seen where Paul has gotten into prison. How did he get there? Well, back before this point, Paul had determined to go to Jerusalem. He felt led to go there. And everybody along the way said, it's not gonna go good when you get there. And he's like, I know, but I still gotta go. And when he shows up, guess what? It didn't go good when he got there. They met him in the, in the synagogue. They started to cause an uproar and a riot. And let me tell you, the Romans are in charge and you know what they really like? It's peace, tranquility. They like things going well for the governors and the controllers and the ones who are in charge of different cities. It doesn't look good for them if their city's in a riot. And when it doesn't look good for them, they don't get promoted. When it doesn't look, they have to have control. So the Romans notice the stir. They show up on the scene and they arrest Paul because you know what? What's the easiest way to quench this? It seems all to be about this guy. Let's get him out of the circle. And they take him to Barrett's and lock him up. Matter of fact, they go to beat him. Now here's the troubling thing about it. Paul's pretty sly. He knows his rights. I'm gonna encourage you this. You don't have to suffer for no reason. If you have rights, use them. And he looks at the guy who's about to beat him and says, is it right for you to beat a Roman citizen without a trial? And he said, whoa, whoa, hold on, you're a Roman citizen? He didn't know. I cared, wait. He thought, I thought you were just one of these Jews that we don't like. Literally, I mean, this is the circumstance he finds himself in. And he appeals, he says, I'm a Roman citizen. Matter of fact, the commander shows up and he says, I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. People would buy this. He said, I paid a lot of money for this. And he goes, Paul's response is, I was born a citizen. So literally, as far as citizenship is concerned, he outranks the commander. He is important, he's valued, priority. He needs a trial. He shouldn't be punished just out of the blue, which is what they wanted to do. So they put him into prison, into captivity. And that's where we find ourselves here at the beginning of the passage. And it starts in verse 12. Now that he's in the barracks with the Roman soldiers, Verse 12 sees what the Jews do. When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. They're angry, they're full of hate, and they've literally said, we have bound ourselves. We have anathematized us to an anathema is what it says in the Greek. We have cursed ourselves. If we eat or drink, we will not do it before we kill this man. There were more than 40 of them who had formed this plot. And these men went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we're ready to kill him. Look at this. These guys are full of anger for Paul. And, And let's understand a little bit I don't don't wanna like give like credit to the killers, but in their view, what they're doing this for is because they believe that Paul is a a zealot who is a threat to the Jewish faith in God. 
They are in their mind defending the honor of God. They are in fact doing what Paul did before he became a Christian, okay? Paul was killing people and had a letter to go to kill more Christians before he encountered Christ. So that's what they're doing. And they're even trying to recruit the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the authorities in Jewish culture to get along on the lie. I think those are in the commandments. Like there's murdering, there's lying. They're just like, we're gonna do this because Paul is a threat. Look at verse 16, what happens? But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander and said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. So the commander took him by the hand, led him aside and inquired privately, what is it that you have to report to me? So now we, we see this new character that we've never seen before, we never see again. It's Paul's nephew. Paul has a sister, what? Paul has a nephew, what? Okay, <laughs> he shows up. And for some reason, he's heard about this ambush plan. He's heard about the plan and he comes immediately to Paul. Now this is actually when Paul's citizenship comes to bear because even though he's locked up, he's got freedom. He have, has guests that can go. He has authority. He literally tells the centurion, hey, come here, take this guy to, my, to the commander. He's like directing his guards. He, he has the freedom. In fact, in, in this, what we often find in this area that prisoners who are kept, especially Roman citizens, their families and friends could come and go and talk to them and, and actually help feed them and clothe them, bring them new clothes, change of clothes, maybe a nice meal. So he's living, as far as confinement can be concerned, pretty well. He has access. And so his nephew shows up. We don't know his age particular. The words they describe him with in first, he's at least not above 20 something, but we are looking at the context and think he's probably in his teens or younger because the commander takes him by the hand and leads him aside. I'm not seeing a 30 year old man taking him by the hand. Let's go over here and talk, you know, it's that kind of thing. So we see he inquires of him privately. And what does he tell him? Verse 20, the Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they are going to hold somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they killed him. Now they're ready, waiting for your consent. This is not new information for us. He's repeating to the commander what we've already seen. Verse 22, so the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. And now what does the commander do? He's got the news. He tells the young man, keep a secret. And he says this, he summoned two of his centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts to ride so that Paul may be brought safely to Felix, the governor. So he hears there are 40 men determined to kill Paul. He doesn't know if they haven't recruited any more, but he doesn't want to take a chance. So what does he get together out of his military? 270 men, foot soldiers, horsemen, spearmen, all of them to do what? Take Paul to Caesarea to the governor. And by the way, I mean, we often see in some movies where the, the, the prisoner is like strapped and pulled behind the horse. He gives him a horse to ride. Paul's being taken in luxury with an entourage. Okay? Because Truth be told, this commander, Lysias, that we find out here in the next portion of the, uh, in the letter here, he doesn't want to take a chance this guy dies. He's already at risk of looking bad because he tried to beat him. 
And then if they find out that he died on his watch when he knew better, it comes all to question whether or not he was plotting with the Jews. This is, a, this is intrigue. This is an opportunity for him to try to squelch this rebellion so he wants to get him out of town and get him to the higher authorities. The governor doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives in Caesarea, and we have to get him there so that he can make a determination about what's going on with Paul. So what's he do? He sends a letter with him, and this is very common. It says this, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he's a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before their Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were concerning the questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. Now this letter makes Claudius look great. He's sending a letter along and says, man, when I heard that this guy was a Roman citizen, I came to make sure he was safe. Nothing about the fact that I almost beat him. Okay? So he's clearly wanting to make sure that everyone knows I'm on the up and up and I'm doing what's right. I took him to the Sanhedrin and it looks like it's just some petty thing about their law. There's no reason to kill this guy. They're trying to kill him, so I'm sending him to you. And I told them they need to come make their case to you, Felix. So it's a common practice to send a letter to clear things up. So what happens when Paul leaves? He took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. And when these men entered Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor. They also presented Paul to him. And after he read it, the governor, he asked what province he was from. When he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So Paul continues to have the same rights as a Roman citizen. He's taken by night, it says. And it wasn't just one night, by the way. It says they go to Antipatris. The soldiers, the 200 soldiers turn back, so they don't go the whole way. It was almost like we're trying to make sure we're secure. After Antipatris to Caesarea, it's mostly Gentiles are a little less concerned. And they're honestly already 35 miles away from Jerusalem. It's a 65-mile hike, essentially. So they've made this march, they've gotten there and they get to Felix. And Felix asks him, asks him the question of what province he's from. And when he responds to Cilicia, he says, I'll listen to you. Basically, he's trying to see what jurisdiction are you in? Do I even, should I even be listening to this? What's going on? Because it's, it can be very common to send him back to their hometown. And Felix determines to keep him primarily because it's too far to send him. It's like another like 60 miles. It's like way away to send him back home to another governor to take a look at it. And that governor is probably going to, a couple things that happen. That governor would be like, Felix, you can't handle this simple thing, right? And the other part is it would really tick off the Jews, which doesn't do well for peace because then they have to go there, right? So they're going to keep him here. So all this happens in here. And when we look at this passage and we see what's going on, the way that God moves and shapes the circumstance for Paul, what are two things primarily, two big ideas that I want us to look and see and recognize in this. And the first one is that the enemy of God's kingdom, the enemy plots and persecutes. That's their thing. Look again at the verses 12 through 15. These Jews form a conspiracy and bound themselves, what? Under a curse, not to eat or drink because they want to kill him. They are bloodthirsty. These are Jewish people. When we studied Exodus, we saw that Israel made a covenant with God at Sinai. And in that covenant, God gave them the big 10 commandments. You remember those? Have you heard them? Usually people are familiar with them. 
and they are vowing to break six and nine because they want to kill him. Exodus 20, 13 says, do not murder. 16, do not give false testimony. And they're conspiring with the Sanhedrin. You guys lie, you get him in the street and we'll put him out. It's a premeditated circumstance. All scripture we believe is God breathed, but God's not the only one that inspires. These men, these 40 Jewish people are being inspired by the enemy of God. And we know it. We can see it in their actions. They justify their bloodlust by pointing to a commitment to God. They say, we're doing this for the Lord, but we're going to break his commandments to do it. In John 8, Jesus talks to the Pharisees, and he actually calls out this very kind of life. One in which they claim to be following after the Lord, the Father in heaven, and yet they live completely counter to it. He says this to the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. Why can't you understand it? Why don't you listen? You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Who is your father? He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and he's a father of lies. That's the one they're serving. They're seeing Paul as a threat and they're saying we are honoring God's uh, we are honoring God by killing him, yet they are really, as Jesus tells us, following after their father, the devil. And brothers and sisters, like Paul, we carry a message of hope in the gospel. The message of God's kingdom come on earth. That's the message he's bringing. That's the message they hate. And while, while we're told that a thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, that Jesus comes so that we might have life and have it in abundance. And that's the message we bring. The good news is that of the kingdom of God. His rule is here in your hearts. It's in our hearts, changing us to look more like Jesus in the way we live, blessing the world through the fruit of the spirit in us. The kingdom of God is, is working through us to others that we reach and disciple in God's kingdom. And God's enemies hate all of that. They don't want you to look more like Jesus. They don't want you to live your life honoring him. They don't want to see the fruit of the spirit bore out in your life. They don't want to see the kingdom go forth into other people's hearts and lives and minds. And what Peter warns us of in this passage of 1 Peter chapter 5 is this. He says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone that he can devour. The same one who inspires them is the same one that comes after you and I when we follow Christ. But Peter goes on and says, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. It's not unique to us in this time. It's not unique to Paul. It's not unique to the early church. It is a life of the believer that we would face suffering because the enemy of God is still present and at work. He works overtly in our lives through different kinds of oppression and even physical suffering. And chronic pain and illness can be discouraging. You can feel debilitating. And really, the enemy works in this world. 
He can work subtly in our lives, whispering lies in our ears, giving us thoughts or ideas, sowing doubt, destroying relationships. Hey, (laughs) take every thought captive and submit it to Christ. You know, it would be foolish for us to believe that the enemy has been around for this long working since Paul and that he hasn't gotten more savvy. I might argue I'm probably even more foolish than the early church was in so many ways. I'm probably easily deceived. Let's not allow the enemy to affect us and take us out of the fight. Let's not let him discourage. Like Paul could be discouraged when he has 40 men standing outside ready to kill him. That is a discouraging circumstance. You ca- My nephew, I don't have a nephew, but if I had one, if they came in here and said there's 40 guys outside waiting to kill me, that's not the bright highlight of my day. Oh, cool. What's for lunch? Don't let the enemy discourage us. And even more than that, I would encourage us, brothers and sisters, don't invite the enemy into your life. Do you know you can do that by the way you live? By your choices to live in unrepentant sin, first and foremost. To walk in sin is to walk after the devil, the enemies of God. Explicitly in Ephesians, it also says for us to walk in unforgiveness. It's to give the enemy a foothold. The passage says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't walk in unforgiveness. Don't walk unrepentant. Don't allow sin to give this enemy a foothold in your life because it takes you out of the fight and you're just not a threat. God has so much more for his people. So first and foremost, the enemy that works then and continues to plot and persecute works now. Secondly, God purposes and prevails. <laughs> this is, even though the enemy plots, God purposes. I love the difference. This, I did that on purpose. You notice that? Not just for alliteration, okay? I cannot avoid it. It's so preachery to do the letters. Is that a word? These 40 Jews are a lot like Paul used to be, but what did Paul have as a purpose? What did God purpose for Paul? Well, we actually see it earlier in Acts. Look at Acts 9, 15 and 16. Just after he interacts and interrupts Paul's life, he goes to another apostle and he tell, or a disciple and he tells that disciple, hey, go pray for Paul. And that disciple says, what? The guy that's killing people? I'm not going to talk to him. But what's the Lord say? He tells him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he suffers for my name. I will show him. His purpose is to do what? Take my name to the Gentiles, the kings, and the Israelites. There's a purpose for Paul and he has a direction to go. Secondly, we also see that as Micah referenced a minute ago, just at the end of the last passage in verse 11, that he tells him, he comes to him and tells Paul this, in prison, have courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify to Rome. So what has Paul heard from the Lord? You're gonna make it to Rome. So even though 40 men are waiting outside to kill him, 
That would change God's plan. So guess what he knows is not gonna happen. Sorry guys, I'm not dying here today. I'm not dying here today because God has a purpose for me. So God, how does God providentially work for Paul? Look at the rest of this, verse 16. The son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks. God's providence, he works to a little boy. They got 40 men waiting to kill him. God's like, hey, where's that nephew we heard about? Where's he at? He's gonna hear about the ambush and he's gonna walk in to report. Not only that, but we already talked about this a little bit, Paul's citizenship. You guys know when Paul was born as a citizen? At his birth, the beginning, <laughs> done. It didn't happen in prison. He didn't buy it the week before. God, in his providence, placed Paul in a position and put his nephew there to help him and guide him to his purpose. It gave him more freedom as a prisoner. It allowed visitors from family and friends. It gave him authority in prison. It gave him value and priority because the commander wanted to preserve his life. And so while God's enemies are flailing and panicking and searching for a way to destroy God's messenger, the Lord had already established from the beginning the means by which his purpose would be accomplished. Paul would leave Jerusalem on his path to Rome and Paul would do it in style riding on a horse escorted by an entourage of 470 soldiers. And here's where we need to remember this. Don't mistake God's providence, though, for escape from all trouble. It's amazing to see what he's done for Paul to preserve his life. But we also know that Paul had a rough go. We can't look at Paul's life and be like, look, Health, wellness, and riches, baby. That's what Christian life is. No. Mm -mm. Paul was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was beaten. But even then, Paul would strive to put our suffering and hope of circumstances into perspective. When he wrote to the Corinthians in the second letter, he told them this in no uncertain terms. Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The persecution, the trials, the suffering, the rejection, the weakness, the frailty of this broken body, that's all temporary. God's work, God's purposes are eternal. That he is intending and accomplishing for all eternity what he intends to do. And it's not slowed down or thwarted or set aside or changed by anything the enemy would ever try to accomplish. And listen, we're not Paul, but we serve the same Lord and we're led by the same spirit and we go on the same mission and we have to ask, what is his purpose for us? Because he hasn't told me to go to Rome. What is his purpose for us? Well, Paul also writes to the Romans and he writes this in verse eight. We read this a moment ago. 
we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. We are, who are called according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He wants to conform us to the image of his son. He wants to make us brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In that final question, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? What can anyone do? The first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's a learning tool in the Presbyterian world specifically, but it has a lot of great stuff in it. And the first question is this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God purposes for us to take us who are rebellious enemies of God and to bring us into the family through Christ so that we can enjoy him forever. That's his goal. That's his purpose for you and I. That means there is nothing that we could fear in this world. The same way we say, what, why should I fear what man can do to me? Jesus tells people, don't, don't fear those who can destroy the body, but follow the one who can destroy the flesh, can destroy the spirit. So we don't live by what we see, but we trust in God for what we don't see. And th verse 32 of this exact same passage puts the nail on the head of why we can trust him, why we can have confidence in him, because even he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us, for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? That's why Paul says this light momentary affliction is nothing. I, I have not faced a trial in this world yet. I'm not at Paul's caliber. He is facing the death by 40 men and saying this light momentary affliction. I'm not there, right? I stub my toe and it's the end of the day. My wife knows my toes are very fragile. But we can have confidence that God is for us because God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son gave Jesus his son why so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life he wants to bring you to life in the family of God and brothers and sisters even unbelievers if you're not if you're here today hear this the ultimate example of God's purpose prevailing over his enemy is in Jesus that's the ultimate example what the enemy meant for evil killing the son of God like, look, they have him on the cross and they're back in the back going, we did it this time, guys. Whew, dodge the bullet. What they meant for evil, God used for good. Making a way of salvation for all people who believe. Everyone. And when we look at this circumstance in this passage, when we see the way that Paul calmly responds, we have to see and recognize that there are multiple examples that we could fall into. Like when we're facing hopeless situations, we could fall into any of these temptations that we see lived out in this story. We could be like the Jews and be driven to anger and frustration and extremes. I mean, vowing to not eat till you kill this guy, that's pretty extreme. 
mean, what extremes have you tried to go to in your life, try to solve things when you're not trusting in the Lord? We could be like the Romans who literally trust in political power and privilege and prestige. But he's sending 470 soldiers to escort this guy. I mean, it's pretty cool, but that's an overkill. He's trusting in the power that the world has given to him. How often do we do that? Look at the means that we have around us at our disposal. We're not trusting in the Lord, but doing any number of things that either are disobedient to the Father or just disregarding his providence altogether. Really living as functional atheists. Like the good and loving God doesn't even exist. Or we could be like Paul. Look at Paul. An unshakable confidence. The man is confined in a barracks, just getting some news from his nephew. But he has heard from the Lord that he must go on to Rome. So he has, we could be like Paul and have an unshakable confidence in the goodness and power of God. The one we follow. The one who is Lord over all and is not shaken at all by the plots of the enemy. He'll accomplish his purpose in our life. And we can trust him. Can you pray with me? Father, we're thankful in your kindness that you've provided us this story. God, that we see unveiled before us in Scripture the way in which you've cared for Paul in his life. That you've demonstrated such power and authority that from the very beginning you have determined the ways and the means by which you'd preserve Paul's life in this story and move him on to Rome as you've already intended he would. Father, encourage our hearts to have confidence to know that, that the enemy may attack and he may... He may see us and we may, be, we may suffer, we may be oppressed, we may walk through trials and tribulations, but God, give us an unshakable confidence in you. Build us up as we trust in you daily. Remind us that every day we have to wake up determined to believe in your Son. Not once and for all for salvation, but the way we live our life is dependent on you. Expose to us where we are failing to believe. Teach us and guide us so that we be more like Paul and be more like Christ to live in such dependence on you. Encourage our hearts, Lord, where we may already be facing the darts of the enemy. And God, where he may have strongholds in the lives here today, I pray God, against the enemy, that you would press on with your children, Lord, and bring them into your loving arms, that they would recognize that there is a, there's grace and peace at the throne. Father, thank you for all that you do and for all that you are, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.